I'll leave my. Uh... Okay, that starts the slide. So you go ahead and start, and we'll know in a minute if that comes up. Go ahead and get started with that. Okay. Sate. Trial, righteousness, journey, chase, hunt. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. Statutes you have laid down are righteous, fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Good stuff. Okay, we'll go to this week of Christian history first. And we'll see here. It says, um, what day is it today? The 21st, isn't yeah, it? October 21st. Medical school didn't prepare him for this. Paul Carlson was born in 1928, and from the time he was a boy, he wanted to be a physician. He followed his dream, and after graduating from the Stanford University Medical School, he went into private practice, learning of the need for short-term missionaries. Short-term missionaries, Dr. Paul and his wife, Louis, went to the Belgian Congo in 1961 to help with relief work. This experience led to a career commitment to medical missions in 1963. Dr. Carlson was assigned by the Evangelical Covenant Church to a hospital in the town of Wasolo in the Belgian Congo, province of Ubangi. In 1964, communist, rebels communist rebel soldiers, calling themselves Simbas, infiltrated this area of the Congo, seizing Stanleyville, which is now Kisangani, the country's second largest city. At the 1964 church conference in the Congo, Dr. Carlson led a communion service in which he said, we don't know what will happen in 1964 and in 1965 until we meet together again. We do not know if we will have to suffer and die during this year because we are Christians. But it does not matter. Our job is to follow Jesus. My friends, if today you are not willing to suffer for Jesus, do not partake of the elements. To follow Jesus means to be willing to suffer for him. When Paul and Lois learned that the rebels were coming towards Wasolo, Paul took Lois and their two children to, safe, to safety in the nearby Central African Republic <clears throat> and returned to Wasolo alone, staying in touch by radio. On September 9th, he reported a disturbance in the town and said, I must leave this evening. The next report Lois heard was that Paul and three Catholic priests, friends of his, were captured and the hospital burned. Then, in a short letter dated September 24th, Paul wrote, Where I go here, from here I do not know, only that it will be with him. By God's grace I live, which I doubt it will be to his glory. The last message was a scrap of paper dated October 21st, 1964. He wrote, I know I'm ready to meet my Lord, but my thoughts for you make this more difficult. I trust that I might be a witness for Christ. Five days later, the Simba radio announced that a mercenary named Major Carlson had been captured and would be brought to Stanleyville for trial. Major Carlson was held prisoner in a hotel room and became the rebels' most publicized captive. Daily, he was marched out for a mock execution, but was beaten instead. In late November, Carlson was moved into another hotel with other American captives. As they talked together, Paul told them, 
I can't think about the future. I can just say, I can just live one day at a time and trust the Lord for that. After four days together, the roar of airplanes awakened the prisoners. Outside, outside, Simba screamed as he ran through the halls. Once outside, they looked up to see Belgian paratroopers descending from the sky. Carlson was among about 250 white hostages herded toward the city square in order to sit down. The sound of machine guns was everywhere. Suddenly, the Simbas began firing into the crowd of hostages. Carlson and some others ran for a nearby house where they had to climb over a masonry wall to reach the porch. Carlson motioned for another missionary to go over the wall first. The other missionary dove over and reached back his hand for Carlson. Five shots rang out and Paul Carlson fell dead in the street. Later, that missionary said, by letting me go first, Paul died that I might live. His grave marker reads, Great, Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. If you've been at the communion service led by Paul Carlson, when he asked only those willing to suffer for Christ to partake of the elements, would you have been a participant? It's not a question to be taken lightly, but when we consider Christ's sufferings, we see the pattern he set for those who follow him. Romans 8.17 says, But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Well, we'll meet him someday. Okay, we've got a couple prayer requests. Bob, uh, whoops. Give him a thumbs up on that. Sergio letting us know all is okay. Let's see here. Bob McDonald has leukemia. He was rushed to the hospital and had a port put in his chest. And then I got an email just a short while later that he had died. And so we want to pray for uh, Sean, his friend, who also is suffering with his own heart problems. He's, I believe, back in the hospital right now, but he was more concerned about his friend. Um, keep all of them in prayer. Fred, Freda Reedy, excuse me, Freda Reedy, um, Doe's mother, has two collapsed vertebrae in her lower back. That's got to be really painful, and she's asking for prayers for her. And uh, George, George's wife, Telly. Good news. I got this today. We uh, prayed for her last year. She uh, had cancer, and uh, she is now cancer-free. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, her name is Telly. And then Trent just emailed a while ago. He said he's having trouble breathing, and that's all I got. So I don't know any more than that, but he's always online. For the people that are online now, you can add Trent into your prayers as well. And then Stephanie's 16-year-old daughter is struggling with how to have a personal relationship with Christ. Uh, she knows the Lord, but she just doesn't, she's having a tough time having a personal relationship. So when I respond to that email, I will say that she needs to be in the Word. She needs to be in the Word, and she will find Christ there, and she will get closer to Him. And then finally, Jerome Epolito is in the hospital with COVID. He's been on a uh, one of those ventilator things for a while, and uh, uh, people have been praying for him, and he showed response for getting better, but we want to continue to pray for him so that he shows response for getting out completely, and we could add in that he is uh, uh, steeped in Catholicism, and so we would pray that he would, uh, while this is going on in his life, he would come to a full and saving knowledge of the Lord, and not just trust in the church, which can't save anybody. Only Jesus can. So we would pray those things. And so let's do that. Heavenly Father, you've heard these prayer requests. You know each and every one of them and others that are unnamed or forgotten by me, which I 
fail to do this from time to time, and I'm sorry about that, but you know the people that are struggling and they have their own trials, as well as the people that have been named here. And uh, we certainly pray that uh, your hand will be with each one of them, help them through their trials, help them through their troubles, and uh, uh, just give your hand of grace upon them. And this includes some people that could not be here today. One of them is having a little bit of trouble at work and uh, don't know what it is, but we certainly pray for that individual and for anybody else that uh, just is having their difficulties, Lord. We do lift them up. We also lift up this class that it would be conducted properly and that it would be in accord with what you would have for us. And if not, please alert us to that so that we would not teach anything that is not proper in doctrine. Lord, we pray these things that you'll be glorified, and we certainly pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay. See, Mom waited until we were praying and then snuck in so that we wouldn't know that she was late. <laughs> okay, we're going to be... I don't recall that. <laughs> All right, we are in uh, Ephesians, not Galatians. I was going to say Galatians. We're in Ephesians 5, verse 23, but Jim may want to take it back somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, the beginning of the um, uh, paragraph. All right. The beginning of the wives and husbands passage. Wives, submit your to your husbands as to the Lord. And 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Okay, I just got an email from somebody not too long ago saying that at some point I want to talk about Paul's views on women. So I can't wait to answer that when I get the questions. They were not given in the email, but um, it's very clear what his views are, but you have to take all of them into context. And we can just start without even looking at the notes right now, that there is a hierarchy in, in the Godhead. There's a hierarchy in the church. There's a hierarchy within the family. And we need to stay within the parameters that are, that are designated. There's nothing demeaning in any of those. Each one of them is for a set purpose, and it is ultimately to bring God the glory. And so that's why uh, these things are the way they are. But are we willing to accept what the Lord says in his word about those particular issues? Then this is one of them right here. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Not one of us is the head of the church or will even be close to it. There is one head of the church, and we are so far below him that it's amazing that he even accepts us as he does. But he does. He's gracious and he's glorious. Uh, this verse now explains the words of the previous verse, which said, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives are to submit to their husbands because the husband is the head of the wife, Paul says. The thought is in line with the words of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. There, Paul said, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. There's a hierarchy. There are set hierarchies, and there's a reason for them, and things function properly when we follow those orders. People always ask me about Africa. I get it all the time. Why is there so much dysfunction in Africa? They've got all of the resources on the planet. They've got, uh, uh, you know, they've got manpower. They've got everything you need, and why is, and they say, is that from the curse of Noah? And I would say, no, it's not, because all curses are lifted in Christ. But much of Africa, not all of Africa, but much of Africa does not follow the uh, father is the head in the family. There's a lot of places where there's no father at all, and there's just the women. They have children, and, and 
they will never succeed in a nation, in a culture, in a tribe. It doesn't matter what the, the breakdown of it is if they do not follow the family model. And we see this every single wife week in the projects where people do not have a father as the head. And without that, there's an unbalance in that family. And we are seeing it. We're reaping the whirlwind in America because that nuclear family is being destroyed right now. It doesn't matter if the family is Christian or not. If there is a family that is together and there is a father as the head, that is the model that God has ordained. We know that it works even when they're not Christians because we've got countries like Japan where there is the father as the head and he's home and he comes home to his children. It doesn't matter where in the world you go. If you see that family model, things will work properly. And when you get away from that, it will not work properly. There will be dysfunction. Okay, this is nothing demeaning. And we know this because if we are as a people without God, we will be dysfunctional. He is our heavenly father. Okay. And so what works for the family must work for the religion as well. Okay. Once again, you got Japan that doesn't follow the Lord, but they have the nuclear family. And so the family unit works and the society works. But as a religious society, it is not functional because they are not under the Lord God. Okay. So everything has a head, but if you're doing what you need to do in the smaller authority, the things will work in that smaller authority and it will affect the greater society around there. Okay, that's the point I'm trying to make. So if you want to know why there's so much dysfunction in certain areas of the world, you will uh, start with the family and that will usually be where the problem is. What's that? Here. Anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Right here in America. It's being torn apart by the day and we are, like I said, we're reaping the whirlwind because of that. America is falling to pieces right before our eyes because we have people like the president that we have who is destroying the nuclear family. Two presidents ago, the same thing happened. And the society was devolving. And then we got a president in there that supported these values. Call them American values. Call them whatever you want. They are values that are instilled in people by the Lord. This is the way a family is supposed to work. And if we hold to those values, things will work in that particular context, okay? I'm not saying people are saved because they have a father in the house. That's, I'm not making that leap at all. All I'm saying is that the house will work if there's a father in it. Okay, let's go on. Wives are just, I've read that. Um, there is a divine order in how God has structured humanity and how he has ordained the family unit. When this structure is violated, it upturns what is right and what is appropriate. And there, in turn, comes a breakdown in the family. If this is the common practice of a culture or society, that society will also break down. A clear and evident proof of this is found in the, here it is, the breaking down of America as the nuclear family is likewise being broken down. Uh, culturally, we are casting off what God has ordained, and society is feeling the negative effects of this. I don't know who that was. anyway. Okay, somebody walked in and obviously had the wrong place. Um, Paul explains this hierarchy further with the words, as also Christ is the head of the church. Christ has a direct and rightful control over the church. He is its founder, is its leader. All that occurs within his church is ordained by him. Likewise, the man is to be the head of the wife. It is he who is given direction of family matters and control of the household belongs to him. 
Okay, I said that if a family doesn't have a father that's in charge, then it's not going to work. And these families that have a woman and three or four children are not properly functioning families. But I've seen families, I know some still in my life today, not in my own family, but in my circle of friends that have a wife that runs the family. And the father does everything that the wife says. And I can tell you that they are as dysfunctional as they can be. There's no cohesion in that family. There's no authority. The spiritual matters are run by the wife. The everything is. And so I can tell you that that is not the way that God has ordained these things. The family will not excel and the children will grow up, I hate to say it, to be losers because they have had a parent that was not willing to step up to his responsibilities and do what he is supposed to do. Okay, this is the way it is. I'm sorry for them. Uh, you know, you can only lead a horse to the water. You can say that the Bible shows that the father is to be the spiritual head of the family. If he doesn't accept that premise, or if he does, is not willing to step up to that premise, then the family is going to suffer. And the children in that family will grow up to be dysfunctional people. That's all there is to it. I, I don't need to have a, you know, a crystal ball to see that. I've got it right here that says that this is the inevitable outcome. We know that, and I can tell you in 10 years when we're sitting in this class and my beard is a little bit grayer, that I will bring that up and I'll say, well, I know a family that, and sure enough, I can just see that. Anyway, I'm, it's just the word explains the way things ought to go in our lives. Okay, um, I'll read that again. As Paul explains his hierarchy further with the words, as also Christ is the head of the church. He has a direct and rightful control over the church. He is its founder. He is its leader. All that occurs within his church is ordained by him. And likewise, the man is to be the head of the wife. It is he who is given direction of family matters and control of the household. It belongs to him. Pretty soon, this kind of thing is going to be banned on YouTube. They're not going to allow this type of talk anymore because this is talk that upholds something that they are opposed to on the left in this nation. And YouTube is going to start taking all of the church videos down that talk about things like this. Mark my words, that's coming soon enough. But for now, we can say at least things like this because the Bible <laughs> proclaims it. We're upholding our belief in the Bible. And so for right now, we can say these things. As a note of comparison, Paul then finishes his thought with, and he, Christ, he is the savior of the body. In these words, various scholars find disagreement in how they are to be translated. Some make them out as a contrast by changing and to but. In other words, the man is the head of the household just as Christ is the head of the church, but Christ is the savior of the body, meaning there is a distinction made between the two heads. Others see this as an analogy. Just as Christ is the savior of the body in a spiritual sense, the husband is to be the savior of the household. He is to lead in religious matters. He is to be the protector of the family, and he must be willing to die for them if necessary. Sounds like that guy at the beginning of the, uh, uh, from this day in Christian history, who's willing to die for somebody else in his place. If not, talking about the father, if not he, then who is their defender? This view seems more appropriate, and it is actually fortified in verse 25, coming soon to a verse near you. For right now, life application, it is the duty of the man of the house to lead the house. He is ordained by God. And when I say, when I stress it, he is the duty of the man, I'm not saying it as if 
I am stressing myself, okay? I'm saying it as I'm stressing it for the weak men out there that are unwilling to do this, that may be listening, and that need to learn that is their responsibility. So the stress on man when I said that is not something about me or Jim or Burke. It's about anybody that has not at this point stepped up to what the Lord has in his word for them. So I'll say it again. It is the duty of the man of the house to lead the house. He is ordained by God with a right, a dignity, and with authority to serve in this manner. Men are the seed of reason. On the contrary, when women are more led by emotion. Does anybody here disagree with that? Okay, I didn't, and we've got women here as well. It's, it's the way that we are designed. If you, you know, watch any of these five-minute TED series, they have them on every subject under the planet, but sometimes they talk about the differences between men and women. And it's surprising because Ted is kind of left in their thinking that they admit exactly things like this. Brain studies, brain scans, MRIs, all of these kind of things. They will ask certain questions and off will, bing, you know, the brain on this side of the woman when it's an emotional question. And the guy, nothing changes. As a matter of fact, his brain just kind of falls asleep during those things. And then when you talk about something reason, something requiring cognition of uh, you know, uh, thinking a problem through, the man goes firing off and the women may get a little bit or maybe not any at all. And that's just the way that we are made. There's nothing wrong with it. It's the way that God designed human beings. If we accept that, if we accept that there is a difference between men and women, and we know that these changes exist, then we wouldn't be doing the things to young children that we are doing in America right now. But we are allowing people to make decisions because of whatever perverse reason, and those people will grow up for the rest of their life having a dysfunction. Their brain will be telling them one thing, and their body will be telling them another thing. And that is why the suicide rate among people that go through this is exponentially higher than the rest of society. It's because these people cannot process what is going on in their lives anyway anymore in a way which is appropriate. Okay? So men are a seed of reason. On the contrary, women are more led by emotion. God has determined that the man's makeup is that which is preferred for leadership. Thank goodness, because if you have leaders that are emotional all the time, which some are, but when they are, things always go bad. If they think things through, if they take wise counsel, if they do the things that are supposed to be done, things will always go better. That's just the way it is. There's nothing sexist about it. There's nothing racist about it. There's nothing, you know, uh, whatever. Whatever term you want to throw at it, it is not. It is simply the way that human beings are designed. That's it. Anyway, 524. Here we go. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Oh, man, this one just eats the left up. I can't tell you how this eats the left up. I, I'm not kidding. This one verse I've seen so many times dismissed and argued against and rallied against. This one says a little difference instead of and. It says, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, which is true, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The woman is to submit to. Now, you know what? There are times where people will email, email me with this particular issue. What do we do? My husband is doing something and I'm doing something. Where, and if they're both on the same page, if they're both emailing and they're asking the question, I will say, you guys talk it over. Talk about what your desires are. Talk about the issue at hand and then decide. If you don't decide the same, you defer to the husband, okay? That's what you do. 
But there's no problem with asking a wife for her opinion. There's no problem with asking her what she thinks or how she feels about it or any of that. But if they do not agree on the ultimate decision, then the wife must defer to the husband. Unless, and this comes up, this is usually a one-person email instead of a, a husband and wife, I get just one. And it is usually the wife, and she says, my husband is deciding something that is against the Bible. And I say, then you should probably not agree to it, okay? Because you put the Lord first, always. The word must take precedence. If the husband is making ungodly decisions, then you should not be adhering to those. You must follow the Lord first. And I hate to even think that I am somehow destroying a family or causing conflict, but listen, the Lord must come first in everybody's life. And if something is being done contrary to the word of God, and some of these things are definitely contrary, they are definitely, you know, I'm not talking about just disagreeing on something. I'm talking about something that is unbiblical. I, and I don't, when I said the word, I hate doing this. It doesn't mean I hate giving the wise counsel. It's that I hate the thought of causing more trouble in that person's life. But you got to follow the Lord. Peter when they were, what was it, Acts 4, is it, where they were beaten for the name of the Lord? But uh, he said, before that happened, he said, we got to follow the Lord rather than men, okay? I don't care what hierarchy you're in. I don't care if it's a, a government that says you are going to get your head shot off if you don't do this. If it is against the word of God, take the bullet, okay? You don't want to violate the word of God. We got one more prayer to, to uh, mention at the end of the church. It just came to mind is that Burke has uh, an operation coming up this Thursday, which he's quiet about, but we will add him into the prayer. I just remember that right now. So um, once again, if you are facing a life decision where you are forced to violate the word of God, then whatever the repercussions are, they're worth it, okay? You do not violate the word of God. That's the main thing. So, um, if, But that's a theme like throughout the Bible. People, when they cherry pick, they'll say, well, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to the Lord. Absolutely. Like, but no, if Caesar is telling you to violate the that, word of the Lord, that, then that that's abortion right. is okay. It's like okay, I don't agree with. That. Absolutely, so, and that's a very good example there. What he said, it just in case you didn't hear it online, is that people will use the Caesar thing, render unto Caesar what is due to Caesar, to to bring in a dilemma between you and your faith with the Lord, and that should never be. It should never be. If something is contrary to the word of the Lord. I don't care if it is abortion. Now, in America, this is a good way of looking at this issue. In America, we have the right to abortion. People can go out and kill their kids all day long. That is their choice. They're not Christians. The law allows it, okay? But if the government says you must abort your child as a Christian, you are to disobey that law. There's a difference between the two. We're not in America to go out and shoot an abortion doctor because he is aborting babies. The Lord will take care of that guy when he meets him face to face, okay? We are to uphold the law in those type of things, okay? But when you are forced to make a decision to do something that is against the word of God, that is when you are to disobey it. If they come and they force abortion on you by injecting you with something, you had no choice in the matter. You can't be held accountable for something that you did not do. Okay, so you just have to use wisdom when you're thinking about these type of issues because they do arise. And in this country, they are going to arise more and more every single day. We've got soldiers in the military that are being given choices right now between what is godly and what is ungodly. I'm not talking just about vaccines. I'm talking about all kinds of issues. 
okay? And what they need to do is separate themselves from that if they're facing those dilemmas, okay? These are things that people need to think through. Am I going to put the Word of God and what He wants me to do above everything else, or am I not willing to do it? Okay, when something happens that you cannot, you know, people always get into these philosophical arguments about the mark of the beast. Okay, well, what if, if you were forced to take a tattoo and they held your arm down and you had no choice, five guys were holding you and they put it on you, can the Lord, is he going to hold that against you? No. Okay, you need to think those type of issues through, which means that that is not going to happen in the end times because the Lord is not going to force you into a position that you have no control over and then take away your salvation because of it, okay? So in the end times, the mark of the beast is something that is willing, it is voluntary, it is a submission to an authority, okay? If you don't understand that, you can go back and watch the Exodus uh 3, 13, 16 sermon, I talk about it. I mention it in the Revelation 13, 16 commentary, is that this is a willful decision that is made by people to do something. The mark itself, even if it's an actual mark, which it probably is, is not what is being focused on. It is the allegiance to the cause that is, okay? So uh, uh, philosophical arguments aside, if you were forced to do something against your will, you can't be held accountable for it. It's just not possible, okay? The Lord is not going to do that. But if you do something voluntarily, we'll be held accountable for it. Put the Lord first. Okay, um, where are we here? Um, you read that. Um, yes, uh, wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Uh, as I said, this obviously excludes anything which is contrary to the will of God. No person is to violate their duty to God in order to be subject to another, regardless of what that position is. Thus, the statement leaves the wife with the following hierarchy of priorities. First, to God. Second, to the husband. Third, to herself. What an unhappy verse for the world today. There is talk of freedom from the bonds of marriage. There is talk of the woman running the house. There is the notion that any God is simply an evolutionary process which randomly and chaotically brought us to the state that we are in. And thus, there is no real difference between people. Any perceived difference with such uh, any perceived difference, such as biological sex, can be corrected through surgery and medicine. Therefore, we are actually all on equal footing, and thus no hint of submission is necessary. Now, not only is that true when you have an evolutionary perspective from the uh, but it is also true that, and this is one thing that people don't seem to think through, is that if you believe in evolution and you believe that one race is higher on the evolutionary level hierarchy than another, that means that you can kill that other race. And that was used to justify the destruction of many millions of human lives in the last century, okay? If a white person thinks that he is higher evolved than a black person, it gives you the right to destroy that black person. And then you get the reciprocal, which I read in the news today, that there are a group of black people out there that say that all whites are inferior species, okay? I don't know if I'll include that in the update or not, but they now have a right because that's just, we're a more developed bug than they are and bugs are to be squished. And so, and we see this all over the world all the time. The Japanese thought they were superior to the 
whites in World War II, and the whites, go look at the videos that were put out by the army, made the Japanese out to be a subhuman species. I mean, everybody will take the evolutionary model and they will use it for their own advantage. And so, uh, and that's true. So these people that are holding all of these, you know, get rid of God, we're going to have a perfect society are only getting ready to destroy their society. They're not going to make it better, okay? And that is true with that issue. It is also true with the issue that if we're all the same, if we can just simply change the biology from a boy to a girl, that boy will now be a girl. And the girl's on the same level as the boy because it was once a boy. And the girl is on the same level as the boy because she was once a girl and all these kind of things. Everything is on equal footing. And it is untrue and it is a lie. The Bible speaks otherwise. No wonder it is so maligned and rallied against. How dare the God of the Bible mandate something which places the female in submission to her husband? How dare he do that? But by casting off those supposed shackles, it is we who will suffer. Only a breakdown of that which is moral, just, and honorable can result from being disobedient to the will of God as is laid out in Scripture. Once again, I know this is true. I know this 100%. Because for 14 years of my life, every Saturday that I am available, I'm in the projects. And I see the results of what we're talking about right now. Tom has been there 15 years every Saturday. Jim has been there about eight now. Eight, seven, five, ten? Okay, whatever. He didn't keep track of it. The only reason why I know is because I was a year after Tom, and Tom's been there 15 years. So that's how I can figure out my... Whoops, I just tore that, didn't I? Dang it. Um, So... uh, Uh, We know this. We see this in the projects. We know that this is true. And if anybody ever comes to Sarasota and visits and they go to the projects with us, they see exactly what we see every single week. Okay? There is only harm that will result to human beings when they are relegated into the positions that are against what the Bible proclaims. Let us endeavor to heed these words and act in accordance with God's perfect will. If we're willing to do those things, things will work out much better. In a family setting, in a social setting, in a societal setting, and yes, even on a global setting, because it's coming soon to a millennial reign near you when Christ is in charge and the world is running as it should, for the most part, there will be obviously people dying and there will be things that aren't quite according to the plan. But once again, that is for a set purpose as well. The millennial reign of Christ will have um, certain things that will teach us that much more before the very end when the Lord decides to, you know, have, have it the way that it was always intended to be, which is coming, and, you know, we're going to be with that at the rapture. Other people are going to have to wait a thousand years, but eventually everything will be as it should. But in the meantime, we're learning these lessons or not learning these lessons, one bad decision at a time. Okay, let's see here. Life application. Because of that established hierarchy in the family, the need to honor God through proper direction of his will is up to the husband. Should he force the wife to submit in a way which is contrary to what he commands, it can only lead to a breakdown in the family and harm for all concerned. So we need to keep these things in mind. We need to uphold the biblical values as best as we can. And, you know, every... One thing that is true is that nothing in life comes with an instruction manual, and I'm talking about a detailed one. When a kid comes into your family, you don't have an instruction manual as to how to do this and how to do that. You just learn as you go, 
okay? And you're gonna make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Nobody gave me an instruction manual when I married Hidako. I actually didn't need one. She's the one that needed it for me. But uh, that's the way that those things work, is that you just learn through experience and what works, what doesn't work, okay? But the general framework, the general instruction manual for making the big and right decisions is right here. It's not going to be found anywhere else unless it is somebody that has used this as the text for their smaller instruction manual. If it's not based on this, it is going to be flawed. It's going to have error in it. But if it's based on this, it's probably... Having said that, there are times where you'll get somebody like, who's the guy at um, uh, Family uh, Dobson? Okay, you get him and he gives you one opinion and you will actually be listening to the next show and another guy gives exactly the opposite opinion. Okay, they're both men of God. They're both supposed to be giving you godly advice and they come to a completely opposite conclusion concerning a matter. Well, that's a problem because they're both supposed to be using the same book and one of them is not taking it in its proper context. Okay, but, you know, I'm going to say this now, which is the same issue, but from a different perspective, just so you can get this, okay? Um, and it, it'll, you'll remember this when you hear it on Sunday, if you listen on Sunday, is that there is a scholar, Kyle, I often refer to him, he, uh, he, I'll quote him, and he's got some good analysis in the Hebrew, and there's John Lang, and then there's John Gill, and you got all these different scholars that I cite. And I think it's Kyle this week, this week's sermon, where he says that, um, you know, what, how does Paul say it, um, you know, concerning taking scripture, rightly dividing the word. Okay, I, I think that's the verse he uses. And he says, when the proper is scripture, or I'm sorry, when the scripture is properly divided, this is the conclusion. Okay, now when somebody says that, it kind of, sets them off and it makes it sound like he must be right because he's saying he's rightly dividing scripture. And that is why I do not like ever when I see, and you see it this a lot, is you turn on a video or you turn on uh, of a sermon or you turn on a video of somebody that is having a Bible class and behind them they've got a placard that says, rightly dividing the word of God. That immediately tells you that he thinks he's rightly dividing the word of God. That's not his choice. He may think he is, but that is not his choice. It is the Bible's choice to determine if he is rightly dividing the word of God. For him to put that up there makes the assumption that he is right and that what he is saying is now to be the authoritative word. I don't like when people do that, okay? And that's what Kyle did, and he's wrong in his analysis. So when somebody says they're rightly dividing the word of God and then they're not, that causes a real problem. See what I'm saying? That's not my, it's not right for Charlie Garrett to say, here, we're going to rightly divide the word of God today. That's why I pray at the beginning of every class, if I'm wrong, Lord, please send somebody to send me the correction. And they better be right because I will think it through. You know, I'm, there's a guy that emails me in the morning with uh, typology. He's done this eight or nine times and he did it this morning. He'll ask a question about typology. And I want to know what he's thinking. And he's typing one thing and I'm not understanding it. And so I'll go back and I'll ask him a question. But until I can resolve that what he is thinking is in accord with the word, I'm not going to say, well, yeah, that's correct. I might say it sounds right, but, and that's why we'll go back and forth until we can resolve that. And there may be a point where I find out, oh, I was wrong in an issue because this person brought something up and now I see where I'm wrong. 
I don't just dismiss people. I think them through, unless I know already 100% that they are wrong, such as heresies like, you know, uh, uh, Hebrew roots. You don't need to guess if that guy is right in this particular issue. He's wrong. Christ fulfilled the law, and we are not to go back under the law. Hyperdispensationalism? I'm sorry. It is wrong. You don't need to debate it with anybody. If somebody sends you something and says, you know, we listen to this guy about this issue? Absolutely not. I have no reason to listen to that at all because it is heresy, okay? But when you get into some of these finer points of doctrine, I'm not going to be the one to say I am rightly dividing the Word of God. That's for the Word to decide, and people need to evaluate the Word to make sure that I am doing that. It's not good to have people putting that sign up behind them. It's inappropriate. Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, 525. Or I do. It's like uh, the husbands do have a, a bit more onus, which we're going to get into. Yeah. This. But the thing is, is that again, it's always down to like what your what's your intent. What yeah. what is your motivation? So, okay, I'm a husband. I'm also a son of the, the Lord. Lord. So it's like okay, but I know he's going to be really nice and good to me, and and he's going to has nothing but good things in store for me, and like you know he's going to give me some tasks, but it's it's going to be worked out. I know because I can. He's got my back. <laughs> Whereas, have I done that? Turned around to my wife, to my wife, and treated yeah, her in the exactly same manner. So it's like it's and he's gonna, guy yeah, to he's gonna say that also. He's like, look at uh, six one really quickly. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Okay, and then it goes, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. So that's in exactly what he said is right. You know, we have an, a responsibility as men to do certain things, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to treat the woman in appropriate fashion at the same time so go go ahead husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her okay christ died for the church without even giving the analysis you ought to think that one through husbands love your wives and just as christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her our love for our wife is to be a self-sacrificing love even to the point of dying for her Okay, it's not to be lording it over her and treating her and abusing her, treating her in a negative way and abusing her. Okay, 525. In verses 25 through 27, we will see the stages of salvation presented to us. In verse 25 is the giving of Christ for us, that is justification. In verse 26 is the work of being cleansed by the water of the word, that is the process of sanctification. And in verse 27, we will see the presentation of the church in glory, holy and without blemish, that is, glorification. It is through this work of Christ that Paul now says, husbands, love your wives. There was the duty of the wife to submit to the husband, just as the church submits to Christ. But the husband is not without direction. Rather, he is to not lord his authority over the wife, but rather is to love her just as Christ also loved the church. In Ephesians, we see on several occasions that Christ sees himself not fully complete without the church. In Ephesians 1, and 23, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Later in this chapter, we will read, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, 
cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We are the body of Christ. He also loves us. Likewise, the husband is to so treat his wife. This love of Christ for the church is so deep that he, as Paul says, gave himself for her. Thus, he has given the husband the pattern of how he is also to act towards his bride. His love is to be a self-sacrificing love that says, no matter what the cost, I will honor this woman that God has given me even to death itself. Are we willing to do that? Life application, a husband who abuses his wife or who treats his wife less honorably than the most precious jewel that he could possess is not honoring the Lord through his marriage. Paul's words are imperatives for us to live by, not to shun. When we fail to honor our spouse in the way that scripture states, we are being disobedient servants of the Lord. That doesn't mean you can't get in arguments with people. This is a fallen world and we don't all see eye to eye and we get stressed and we get tired and we get hungry and our emotions get out of whack when that happens. That's not what that's speaking of, but it is saying that in the end, you are to treat your wife just as Christ has treated the church. He's willing to die for her. He treats her as the most precious jewel, and that's what we're supposed to do with our wife, who is our most precious jewel. Okay? 526. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. This one says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Okay, there are subtleties here <clears throat> that need to be looked at carefully. First, this verse is speaking of Christ's love mentioned in the previous verse. It is then being made as an example to husbands for how they are to treat their own wives. Christ gave himself for the church, and then he goes on and says that he might sanctify and cleanse her. The words actually should be rendered might sanctify having cleansed her. We are cleansed through the work of Christ. We stand forgiven and justified before God because of the giving of his life. Okay, that's one thing we can stop really quickly there and think about that is that Christ died for our sins. We are justified before God. Once again, if you just simply think through the process of what Christ did and what it means to the believer, you will come to no other conclusion than eternal salvation. If you come to another conclusion than eternal salvation, you are not understanding the theology of what Christ did for you. You are misunderstanding it and you are making an error in your thinking about what Christ has done. Okay? The cross is either sufficient for every sin that you have ever committed, or it is insufficient for any sin that you have ever committed. And that's all there is to it. Salvation is eternal. Christ died for us to cleanse us. Okay. Once again, there are all kinds of silly little arguments. Well, can I walk away from my salvation? You know, maybe I can't lose my salvation, but I can voluntarily give it up. What kind of an idiot would voluntarily give up his salvation? It's just stupid. It's a stupid argument that somebody comes and theorizes over just to make a point that, yeah, see, you're wrong. And they're, no, absolutely not. If somebody would voluntarily give up their salvation to be cast into hell, they're not thinking properly anyway. And Christ isn't going to chuck away somebody just because they have a mental issue, okay? If they are saved, Christ saved them. Any other option than that means that God has made an error in your salvation. 
God is incompetent in your salvation. God has lied about your salvation because it is a guarantee when he seals you. So all of these things are simply evident from verses when he's talking about a husband and a wife. If you just stop and think them through. We'll read that again. The words actually should be rendered, might sanctify having cleansed her. We are cleansed through the work of Christ. We stand forgiven and justified before God because of the giving of his life. In that act, we are sanctified, as Paul says, with the washing of the water by the word. There's a twofold aspect of sanctification that the Bible speaks of. The first is that we are sanctified. We are set apart unto God through the work of Christ. That has happened the moment that you believe. A good example of this is what I've talked about in uh, Deuteronomy with Israel. This will help you to understand it. I've mentioned it in chapter 7. I mentioned it last week. We're going to probably see it again one or two times. I don't want to say that for certain, but probably. Okay. God set Israel apart as holy. They are a holy people. Israel can act unholy. Anybody disagree with that one? I mean, the whole rest of the Bible and modern Israel shows you that. So there's a difference between being declared holy, set apart by God, and being holy before God. We are the same way. God has sanctified us. It is a done deal. You, if you have called on Jesus Christ, have been justified before God the Father, and you are sanctified. You are positionally holy and set apart forever before God. And yet you can act in a very unholy manner. Just like Israel, we can do that too. And therefore we must go through a process of sanctification. We are sanctified and yet we are being sanctified. Does anybody not understand that? It's very clear. Israel is the template of individual salvation. Okay. The word sanctified uh, the first is that we are sanctified, set apart unto God through the work of Christ. That is done. Just as Israel is set apart as a holy people to God, that is done. There is also a sanctifying process which is ongoing in nature, which we actively participate in. This is actually seen in Jesus' words. We'll go first to John chapter 13, and then we'll go to John 17. First in John 13. And in verse 10, he says, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Okay? Yes, I'm going to talk about that, so I won't explain it now. And then in John 17, he says, 17, 17, that's correct. Burke is ahead of me. It says, I saw you turning your pages earlier to get something, and I knew that you were ahead of us. Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So we have John 13, 10, and uh, that's further explained in John 17, 17. We are cleansed, having bathed. There's in John, let me go back to John 13. I may not talk about it in any detail. Do I? Um, no, I don't. But there are two different words that are being used in John chapter 13. I don't remember one of them as luo and the other one I can't remember right now. Um, uh, I wish I'd thought of this beforehand. Anyway, he says, um, uh, Jesus answered said to him, what I am doing now you do not understand, but what, uh, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed 
needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. What he's, he's using two different words, bathed in the... Okay, what he's saying, it's pictured in the tabernacle in the wilderness. The people are cleansed by the Lord. Okay, they are purified. I'm talking about the priests. They are purified for the priestly duties. They went through an ordination process. They had to sit in you know, the temple area for seven days and do this and that. And they had to do certain sacrifices. And then they were ordained for the priesthood. Okay, this is what happened. But every time that they performed their priestly duties, they had to walk past something. What was it? The laver, the bronze laver with the water. And it says they are to wash their feet and their hands. They are to wash these things. It wasn't doing anything. It was a type of what Christ just talked about with Peter. You are cleansed in Christ, and yet you need to purify yourselves in Christ. Everybody see that? There's two things going on. One is you are set apart. You are sanctified. You are bathed. You are holy. But you also need to continuously come and cleanse yourself to be right before the Lord. Okay, so that's what's going on. I'll read this again, just so you understand. The typology goes from the Old Testament. Everything about the Old Testament sacrificial system, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the menorah, the ark, all of it is simply a picture of Christ. Those are not Jewish symbols. Those are not, the feasts, for example, are not feasts of Israel. That has nothing to do with it. And if somebody starts out their analysis of the feasts of the Lord saying, these are Jewish feasts, or these are feasts of Israel, you might as well just turn it off right there. They've already made a fundamental error in their thinking. They are not Jewish feasts. They are the feasts of the Lord because they picture what the Lord is going to do either by himself or through you. The pilgrim feasts are the through you part, okay? There's nothing to do with Israel other than that they lived out the typology. Everything from the Old Testament anticipates something, a spiritual truth that is now revealed in the new. And that's all it is. So when people take that and say in their theology, well, that's all Jewish stuff and we don't need to worry about that. They've misunderstood everything about what was going on in the Old Testament. That is there for our instruction. That is there for our learning. It is there for us to see Christ. And so if you just skip the Old Testament and get right into the new, you may be saved. You may have all kinds of good and interesting insights, but you've missed all of the important stuff that led up to it. You've missed all of the typology, and so there will always be a void in your theology. Always. You cannot read the book of Hebrews and understand what is going on at all unless you already know what's being said back there. You can get what Paul is saying, the, the ultimate truth, but you're not going to understand why he's saying it, what it means, because it's all about that typology pointing to Christ. And the same is true pretty much with Romans and with Galatians and everything else. Everything that they wrote was based on Scriptures. That's right, scriptures, and the only scriptures that existed were the Old Testament. So be careful to read the Old Testament. Don't skip over it. It can be mind-taxing at times. Just read it, read it, read it, and eventually it'll start falling into its proper place. It'll start making sense to you. Okay, so we are cleansed. Having bathed, we require sanctification, periodic washing. That's the picture being made. It is a twofold and distinct process. The original picture of this, oh, here it is, goes all the way back to the book of Exodus and the ordination of Aaron and his sons for the priesthood of Israel. They were fully washed and consecrated as priests in Exodus 29. However, they were instructed that they were to continue to wash their hands and feet at regular intervals in Exodus 
30. One happened right after the other to make a lesson for us. Those washings made specific pictures of Christ, his work, both for our cleansing and for our ongoing sanctification. It is these most important points which are seen here and which explain very carefully what Christ has done for us. It also shows what he will continue to do for us if we apply his word to our lives. If we don't, we're not going to grow in maturity, okay? This washing of the water by the word is what occurs when we hear the word, the gospel of our salvation, and then accept it. When we do that, we are washed. At that moment, we are saved by God and sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Spirit. Right now, we're going through the book of Acts in the Daily Commentary, just to in you know Acts chapter one, uh, two just started or it'll start tomorrow. Acts chapter two verse one, and we're going to go through the coming of the Spirit. We're going to go through the uh, you know Peter. I'm not there yet, but Peter's going to stand up and start explaining what is going on. As a matter of fact, this morning I typed. I think it was two thirteen, two twelve, where it says, "Oh, they're they're mocking. They're full of new wine." Yeah, okay, that's what I typed this morning. But we're going to go through that and people will come to really bad conclusions about their spiritual life in Christ and their baptism of the Spirit because they use Acts chapter 2 as a prescriptive account. It doesn't prescribe anything. It just simply tells you what happened. It's a historical account to show how the church began. And if you use it in any other way than that, then you will have error in your theology. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It is a descriptive account. It describes what happened. There's nothing prescriptive, and we'll talk about that all the way through Acts chapter 2, okay, including new wine. You want to know about new wine and what that means? You can go back to the Old Testament, and you can find that out as well. So that's what I typed this morning, okay? So um, uh, let's see here. The most important points of what Christ has done for us is all shows what he will continue to do for us if we apply his word to our lives. The washing of the water by the word is what occurs when we heard the gospel of our salvation. I'm just repeating what I read a minute ago and then accept it. At that moment, not Acts chapter 2, at that moment in our lives, we are saved by God and sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit for us. That is what is normative for the church age now that the epistles are written. It is not normative for the church age to have tongues of fire land on top of people and they start speaking in tongues. Does anybody disagree with that? Because if you do, you got the wrong church. Okay, that is not normative in any way, shape, or form. What is normative is what I just read you. Paul's epistles give us the doctrine for the church age. The historical account was only given to establish the church and to verify many things that we need to know as to why they are today the way they are, but it had to happen in the way that it happened. That's why God did those things. The rite of water baptism is an outward demonstration of the inward change which has already occurred. Amen. Amen to that. It is not specifically what is spoken of here. The spiritual baptism and ongoing spiritual cleansing is the reference being made. If you have not been water baptized, you have not been obedient to the Lord. That's all there is to it. I don't care what your doctrine is, whether it's dispensationalism, Calvinism, you know, covenant theology, hyper-dispensationalism, doesn't make any difference to me. 
what matters to me is that you are being disobedient to the word which says to be baptized according to scripture. Jesus' words after the resurrection during the time of the new covenant says to go forward and make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are to do. If you have not been water baptized, you are being disobedient. Just like when you don't take the Lord's Supper. I mean, I don't understand how churches go years without ever having the Lord's Supper, ever. You know, some of them have it twice a year. Some of them have it once a month, whatever. But we're instructed to take the Lord's Supper by the Lord. There's only two ordinances that he gave to us. The first is water baptism, and the second is actually it's the first is the Lord's Supper because he did it before he was crucified saying this is okay. And then the second one is water baptism, which he said after being resurrected. And people want to divide the word up through hyper-dispensationalism to the point where the word means nothing. There's nothing of value that they have in their theology because they have disregarded so much important theology. What matters is that we are obedient to the Lord. So if you haven't been water baptized, you should do it. And anybody, this is something that my friend sent out a day ago. He does a commentary once a week and sends it out. And he's absolutely right on it. There is nothing in scripture that says that you have to be ordained, uh, baptized by an ordained minister or by a priest or by a theologian or anybody else. If you are a saved believer in Jesus Christ, you, the reason why I say this is because there's nothing that says otherwise. You have a right to baptize others into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They need to be saved and you need to be saved. And if they are saved and they haven't been baptized, you can baptize them. If you want to have some particular person baptize you, that's good, okay? Because it means something to you personally. But what you are doing is you are being obedient to the Lord and you are making the picture that was intended by the Lord for the world to see. I was buried with Christ in his death. I was raised to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. I got to baptize somebody last week, just last week, right here in this church, out back of my house. And what I did is we filmed it on with the uh, camera and Sergio was sitting in Israel cheering it on. He was so happy to see that. So there you go. This is just something that you should do because this is what the Lord has commanded. Okay. I don't think a hyper dispensationalist would be in tune with doing either of those things. They think that they're... No, they, they will take the Lord's Supper because Paul commands it directly in the 1 baptism, Corinthians 11. Baptism, no, no. You'd not, and that's where their disconnect is. There's a complete disconnect in their thinking because the same Lord that said that one also said this one. And he didn't say it to Israel alone. He said it to all nations. But then what did they do? They say that pertains to the millennial reign of Christ. It has nothing to do with the church age. Now, it is insane thinking. It's not just off thinking. It is insane thinking. Yep. Go ahead. What do you got, Bert? Seventh-day Adventists say it's water. What about the people on the cross? Yeah. Today you're going to church of Christ, too. If you're not baptized into the Church of Christ, then you're not saved. It's crazy. That, that is incorrect thinking. That's right. What about the... And, you know, what they'll do is they'll say, well, that was just an exception. The, the uh, Yeah, the guy on the cross was an exception. Jesus made absolutely not. But they say that that's people what saves. And, yeah, everything, so everything. People get into these little pet peeves, and they destroy just the beauty of what God has given us in the Word through what Christ has done. It's all about Jesus, and we're supposed to look at it from that perspective. But you're right, Seventh-day Adventist, you, Church of Christ, okay, they have these little nip. And Church of Christ is based on what? Acts 2.38. They're using a descriptive verse, which has nothing to do with them in the first place, and they apply it to their church and say that if you don't do that, you're not going to be saved. That's why if you misread or miss 
use the book of Acts, you will have error in your theology. 100%. Okay, again, this is spiritual baptism and ongoing spiritual cleansing is the reference that is being made. Again, these words are given to us as an example of what Christ did for us, and thus what the husband is to do for his wife. Just as Christ gave himself up for us in order for us to be a perfect and spotless bride, so husbands should be willing to expend themselves for the sake of their precious wives. Life application. We have been cleansed by the work of Christ. We are also told to grow in Christ through the study and right application of his word. Let us endeavor to do these things and not allow ourselves to get pulled back into the world from which we were called out. Okay, the world, sanctification, we're not going to be sanctified and purified if we're not in the word and if we're living like the rest of the world. The same thing is true with using the Bible in a wrong way. Hebrew roots, go back to the Old Testament, observe the feasts of the Lord. It becomes all about externals. It becomes all about what I am going to do to please God. Christ has done everything necessary to please his Father for us. Everything. What we need to do is to accept that premise, accept that Christ has done it all. We can't do anything to save ourselves. And once again, water baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with meriting favor before God. That's why you will not lose your salvation if you don't get water baptized. The only thing that does is that you are being disobedient to the Word of God. That's the only thing it is. Same thing as not taking the Lord's Supper. You're not going to, you know, lose your salvation for not taking the Lord's Supper, but you are being disobedient to the Word, which tells us to do this when you come together. Let's go there really quickly, just so you can see it. I say it every single week. I'm not going to try to memorize it. My brain doesn't work that well, so we're just going to go to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read you what it says here. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is what he told them to do, and that's why Paul is repeating this. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he's saying, whenever you do this in remembrance of me, that's what you're to do. He doesn't give any specific time frame. He doesn't say do it every morning at 7 o'clock. He doesn't say do it every Sunday at 9.30. But he says, do this in remembrance of me. If you're not doing it, then you can't be doing what he told you to do. So there has to be some interval that you pick in your life and you say, I am going to honor the Lord in this way. In this church, because it's small, because we have the availability, we have the time, we do it every single week. And as far as I'm concerned, that is a perfect way to do it. We don't do it on Thursday night, but we do do it every Sunday so that people are reminded every single week of the work of the Lord in our lives, okay? And there's a reason for this. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're supposed to do. It's an outward demonstration of what Christ did, just as baptism is. They both are ordinances given by the Lord for a specific purpose, it's to remember what Christ did and to make it a proclamation of what he did. That's why we get baptized. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. Okay. Interesting, though, because there, over on 27, comes here with his wife and daughter. He said he sat, they, they sat there, their 
plate out in front of them and take the Lord's Oh, Supper yes. With you when yeah, a lot of people do that. Yeah. I, they'll email me and they'll say, we take the Lord's Supper right with you every single... As a matter of fact, once in a while, somebody will send me a photo of that. They'll send me a photo of, you know, they'll have me on the TV and then they'll have their bread and wine and they'll have it laid out before them. And when they do that, I always use that at the end of the... When we do after the sermon, when I'm editing the videos, I shove one of those photos in there, and so I got three or four of them that people have sent me, and that's how I make the divide between the sermon and the Lord's Supper. I put one of their photos in there, so that just pleases me that they're out there and they're actually doing ask that with us. What? Well, if they can if they want. Oh, I'm never. You know me. I'm not going to ask people to do things if they do it. They hint, do it. Hint. And, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hint, hint. But I, I'm certainly never. I don't like asking people for things. If they want to do it voluntarily, that's fine. But I'm not. I don't want to embarrass people by saying, "Oh," because then you have 400 people sending you photos and whatever. Anyway, you had a question before I did, and uh, the Lord's Supper focuses on His death exclusively. Yes, remembering baptism, His death till He baptism, comes. Baptism, death, death, burial, and, and resurrection. And resurrection. So it's like I, I just an oddity just a no well you, you're right though interesting but thing to... you can't have the resurrection without the death and Correct. so you go into the water and you know i said this to chuck here last week and i say it to everybody before i baptize i'm only going to ask you two questions the first is are you a believer in jesus christ are you willing to follow him in believer's baptism Yes. And then I say, because if you answer yes on the first and you don't answer the second, I'm just going to put you under the water and leave you there. But if you say yes to both, I will bring you back out. So it's your choice. And most people say yes to both. I've only left five or six people under the water. Not really. Okay. So 527. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Okay. This one is reworded but it's close that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish so it's reworded in a couple different words in there but it's close okay 527 the full thought should be considered to understand the context husbands love your wives just as christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself for his beloved church in order to make her ready for himself. Excuse me. He has given us his word to prepare us for our union with him as well. All of the ceremony stems from him, and it is directed by him. It will even be that he will be that he will present her to himself a glorious church. Everything about it is the work of the Lord for the Lord, and all we do is participate in it. The role of his is what is known as a paranym. It is, this is who gave me this, I don't know who gave me this, I'm sorry, these are not my words, I'm just quoting somebody and I did not put their name. It is a ceremonial assistant and or coach in a ceremony. In ancient Greek weddings, this sounds like Vincent's word studies, but it might not be, so I'm just going to qualify that. In ancient Greek weddings, the bride and bridegroom were attended by paranyms, and from this, 
use, it has been generalized to refer to attendance of doctoral students, best men, and bridesmaids in weddings, and the like. It can refer specifically to the friend of a bridegroom tasked with accompanying him in a church to fetch the bride home. Okay, that is probably, but not assuredly, Vincent's word studies. I, it's not my words, okay? Christ is the one who will accomplish this fetching of the bride home. Can't wait for that. There to present her to himself. But he is also the one who gave himself for her, sanctified her, and cleansed her. In all matters, he is the one who has directed the affairs of the bride so that she will, as Paul says, not have spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The idea of a spot is that of sin. Okay, already that is taken care of. Yes, we can sin. No, we are not imputed sin. Okay, the spot is sin. We are not being imputed sin. Christ has covered every sin for us, and so that is taken care of. The idea of a spot is that of sin. It is the Greek word spilos, and it is only found here and in 2 Peter 2.13. The spots on a garment would reflect impurity of that garment. The literal spot is used as a metaphor for moral imperfection, and thus sin. In Christ, our garments were made spotless. It's already done. He has made us spotless in himself. We are brought to a state of sinless perfection. That is reflected. Let me stop right there. I may get to this again later, but we'll do it right now while it's on my mind. In Revelation chapters 1, 2, and actually 2 and 3 only. But he speaks about exactly that. And then you'll see this again throughout the book of Revelation. But in Revelation 2 and 3, which according to hyper-dispensationalists, has nothing to do with the church, but has everything to do with the church. He says, um, let's see here. Three, yes, three, four. You have a few names, and even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay, so there you go. He's speaking about purifying people and wearing garments of white. And there are other times that he says this. Let me see if I can find one more. Um, that's the one that I see in my eyes right now. Okay, but uh, the purity of Christ and what he did, uh, I read that one there. I think it's over 17. Oh, yes, well, you're talking about later in Revelation, the people during the tribulation period. That's right. They've Same thing, they are given white garments and they're told wait a little longer and so the world has to go through some more tribulations. That's correct as well. So it is seen throughout the book of Revelation where white garments are indications of Christ's perfection being uh, bestowed upon a person. And that's what's being talked about here. No spot or blemish. We are cleansed and purified because of Christ. Okay, so we're brought to a state of sinless perfection. The idea of a wrinkle is that of the consequences of sin, getting old and dying. The word for wrinkle is rutus and is only found here in the Bible. It is the sign of aging. We get the word rheumatism, okay? Those type of words come from that root. This will no longer be evident. There will be no more wrinkles on a person. Our old nature in Adam will be removed, and we will be forever in a state of youthful vitality. No wrinkle of Adam will be detected. Now, what it's going to be like, some people say you're going to be 16 when you're glorified, and some people say, no, you're going to be 30 years old. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't talk about those kind of things, okay? All we know is that we will not have any spot or wrinkle. We will never age in the sense of getting older, but we will get 
older because we'll live forever. So we'll be, how old are you now? I'm 5,972,000 years old today, whatever. Okay, we're going to go on forever, but we will have no spot or wrinkle. We will have baby skin. Baby skin, yeah. See, now Burke is, he's inserting into the word baby skin. No, it's, yeah, whatever it is going to be, it's going whatever to be works. so, whatever works, it's going to be so beautiful. It's going to be so wonderful that we can't even imagine it right now. You know, just look at what, I bring it up from time to time, Eve's reaction after being kicked out of the garden and the naming of her first two children. And it says all you need to know. She named the first one Cain, Kynan, I have acquired a son. She's going back to paradise. She's so happy. She says, I have made a man with the Lord. I have brought about my own salvation and I'm going back to paradise. And then the next one she names Abel. His name is Havel in Hebrew. It's breath. It's just breath that disappears on a cold day. You see it fade away. And you'll never see what you wanted again. And that's what she realized. Cain isn't getting me back to glory. I'm stuck here and I'm going to have children and I'm going to die someday. So you can just see, right, the sad, sad state of affairs that's reflected in the naming of those two boys. And it shows you how wonderful whatever they had was because it's all she could think about. Okay, so uh, further, we got the spot, the wrinkle, the youthful vitality, the baby skin. Further. <laughs> Paul continues by stating that there will not be any such thing. Man, won't that be great. There will be nothing which detracts from the beauty of Christ's bride. We will be wholly undefiled, perfectly radiant, and eternally set in our status as Christ's precious bride. We shall be holy and without blemish. No error or fault will remain in us when we are presented. Man, I can't wait for that day. I, mean, I just can't wait the day I stopped letting the Lord down. This idea harkens back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament where animals were to be without blemish. Sometimes it said without spot and blemish, okay? When presented as an offering to the Lord. They were to have no marks which detracted from their perfection. Now that's not looking at us, that's just a similar analogy, but those were looking to Christ who was the true lamb without spot or blemish. I'm just making a comparison that we will be like that because when we see him, we will be like him. Okay, so uh, they were presented as an offering to the Lord. They were to have no marks which detracted from their perfection. So will be the bride of Christ when we are presented to him. This is found in Revelation chapter 19, where it says in Bible, verse... What? Bible reads here in this the church in all of her glory. In all of her glory. And that's the Absolutely. You know, his glory, you yeah. Know? Transfiguration of Christ. And we're, we're going to have something like that. When we see him, we will be yeah. like him. Okay. It says here in Revelation 19, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, two possibilities on that uh, particular verse. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, or the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. I would 100% say that it is righteousness of the saints, because Christ is our righteousness. Our righteous acts are nothing compared to what Christ has done. So, you know, we can say, oh, look at all the great things we've done and we're getting these garments. I disagree. 
the word should be translated as righteousness, and it's because of an imputed righteousness, not our own. But what's it? He's made to us righteousness. That's right. He has made to us. We don't have anything to do with it. I tell you what, even in these bodies, after being saved, I'm sorry, the things we do are, they're tainted with sin. It is all about Christ. All about Christ. Yeah. Okay, we're going to be done here right now. Uh, life application. Let me circle this while I'm thinking of it. Life application. Christ has done his part for his bride, and he will continue to do so for her until the wonderful day when he presents her to himself. As this is so, shouldn't we be endeavoring to do the same? Shouldn't we? Let us strive for perfection, which is, which even if unattainable in this life, is what our betrothed would ask of us. Let's try our best to do that. I had a nice young man in the church here today, went to the same school that my children went to, even though he's quite a few years behind Tangi and Thor, and he is so on fire for the Lord. And he uh, uh, said, man, I wasted 27 years of my life. He's been saved, but he just, I just didn't understand how precious this word is. And he's, he's got the attitude, use me up now, Lord. Use me up now. This is the life that I have to dedicate to you before I stand before you. And I'm so thankful when people come to that conclusion that I have a responsibility to act properly and to conduct my affairs in a way which will glorify God, which will bring him honor, which will help me to understand him. All the things that we should be doing, how wonderful it is to see some young guy that, that's found that attitude in his life and he's just on fire for him. And I would pray that he would just stand fast and keep that attitude all the days of his life. And, you know, if I can be a part of that, if he needs it, you know, uh, 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 you know, just an email to cheer him up someday, that's what we got to do for each other. But, you know, we need to make sure that we do the best we can right now before we stand before the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the chance to come into your glorious presence and to uh, learn your word, to study your word, to know that your word is sure, that it is totally perfect in what we need to know in order to find satisfaction in you, to find salvation in you, to find blessing and honor in you, and to someday stand in glory with you. Lord, thank you for this word that has been given to us by you so that we can do all these things and to know all these things. What a precious word it is. Thank you for it. We praise you for it, and we praise Jesus, who is the subject of this word. Oh, God, thank you for Jesus, our Lord, who came to do what we could not do for ourselves. And we praise you in his beautiful name. Amen. All right, let me back this baby up here. Great.